What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. You'll come to you someone who publishes a punk. You may or may not still be involved in punk, but I'd like to change by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, one of my buddies, one of my longtime pals in this music world of ours, Randy Randall of the band No Age, for a very special two-part No Age uh, uh, episode. I'll get to, I guess episodes? I don't know. I'll get to it in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, Head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at, at gmail.com, and you can send an email there, and it will be get gotten to by my brother and show producer and, and guest booker extraordinaire, except this week when it was kind of me, Tristan Abraham. Thank you so much, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for this podcast each and every week. Uh, you can also find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. And if you'd like to support the show, the best way of supporting the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you enjoy this podcast. You can also uh, subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes. Thank you very much to people that do give it uh, five-star reviews on iTunes. I very much appreciate that. Also, you can uh, head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash turnitapunk and check out all the stuff that we do over there. Um, and that would be great. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a couple of years ago and said, Damien, just do what you do. Just don't lose money doing it. And, and that's what I've been doing. And they let me book whoever I want. And it's been, it's been great. It's been a, a lot of fun so far uh, doing this thing. On to today's show. Today on the show, my friend, my buddy, Randy Randall of the band No Age. Now, I met No Age a while ago, and I've wanted to have him on the show. And what better way to get them on the show than for a celebration of their brand new Goons Be Gone album, which has come out on the, the venerable institution Drag City Records, and it's a fantastic record, as with all the No Age records. Like, one of my... One of my favorite bands. This band is someone, uh, you know, well, someone, two people that uh, continue to find new ways to kind of take their sound and to do new things. And yeah, anyway, I've always wanted to have these guys on the show. And now for the new album, we're going to do it. So today it's Randy. Hopefully tomorrow, maybe the next day, you'll see how I'm doing with this edit. It's getting a little challenging editing <laughs> with all these people, but uh, hopefully tomorrow. We will have the Dean episode, Dean Spunt of No Age as well. And check out that album. It's on streaming services now. Physical records will be coming very shortly to a retailer near you. And yeah, a great band. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Randy Randall on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> 
Randy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dude, thank you for having me. It was awesome. Well, I, I, I spared you from this off air because I'd have to repeat it right on air, but uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. And obviously your band, I think, is such an important band in the history of punk music and, and really like an inspiration for me personally and in my band and stuff like that. So it's taken too long for this to happen, but I'm glad we're finally making it happen. Awesome, man. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm so stoked. It's always been fun playing shows with you guys. I remember, you know, we'd get the question occasionally, like, what was the craziest show you ever played? And I always say that, uh, six or what was it? Fourth Street Bridge, in the South Austin by Bridge. Yeah, the Bat yeah, Bridge. Austin Bridge. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. I remember feeling like the bridge was like bouncing, like the bridge was going to break. There's so many people on it, and it got so nuts. Yeah, like I really felt, you know, like kind of in that moment where you know we're like playing South by Southwest. When we met you guys, we're like, oh shit, here's like people that are on the exact same wavelength that we're on. And we could have all totally. died that night. And, and, you know, <laughs> that would have been the end of the story, but the end of the story. It would be, Thank, uh, thanks Timmy. Yeah. Thanks Timmy. Timmy. God damn it. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 No, no, it's been super cool. It's always, yeah, it's always been fun playing shows with you guys and, you know, meeting up over the years and everything. And uh, yeah, doing the, did the remix. I was thinking about that this morning. Yes. Like, oh yeah. The, the epiphany, no epiphany. Yep. And you, and you also, the, uh, you, you hooked me up with Justin and doing an Altamont catalog and a, Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, There too. So yeah, dude, we're going to get there, but we got to start this off the way they all start off, which is Randy. How did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across (laughs) the genre? Yes. So I have, I have a bit of a, uh, a, not not tortured history with punk, but it's not a straight line. So I, I grew up in Southern California. I was born in 1981. Uh, grew up in the Inland Empire, which is kind of the, the desert region of Southern California. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, my, had two older brothers. And uh, my oldest brother, Sam, uh, played, played guitar and skateboarded and actually ran a, a skate shop. He, he and my mom opened up a skateboard shop in our tiny town in 19, from, I think it ran from 89 to 91. So kind of right from the, the end of the big wheels into the skinny popsicle stick, double nosed <laughs> kind of boards. So it was right in that transition. So I was in, I think, third, third, fourth, fifth grade. Um, and uh, and I would spend the summers there. That was kind of my summer babysitting because I got to hang out in the skate shop. So I, I kind of placed my understanding of punk right alongside of um, of like skateboarding. You know, I kind of see those like it was the, it was just the the music that was on all these skate videos and the music that was on in the skate shops. So I kind of I kind of put it in that world, and I think that world sort of being SST related, like Minutemen, Black Flag. Um, meat puppets, kind of, you know, that that sort of brand of what punk is. I don't think anybody would debate that SST was punk or not, but it was it's different, I think, than than the straight sort of hardcore sort of world. So because of that, I, I kind of understood. That was, well, to me, it just felt like music. I didn't really classify it as punk or hardcore or this like tough guy kind of music. It was just the anthems and the songs that went along to these incredible skate videos. Um, so then when I was later faced with, with things like Green Day and Blink-182 <laughs> and people were calling that punk music, I was like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> what the fuck is that shit? That's not punk music. There's no heart. There's no politics. There's no, you know what I mean? These guys aren't saying anything. They're just, they're just aping stuff and playing polka beats and they have, and they have a haircut in the, in the, you know what I mean? It looks like, so to me, you know, I, I later understood, you know, got some, some context 
for, you know, I mean, that's where bands like that came from and could understand it. But I think growing up in Southern California and kind of becoming a teenager in the nineties, we were obviously faced with a lot of, um, uh, X games and warp tour and these types of things. And I think it just, it just hit me with as a sour note of like, okay, it's punk, but for, for whatever reason, descendants didn't hit. I don't know why descendants weren't in that. I think if I would have understood descendants place Mm -hmm. and those early punk, you know, in that SST sort of world, then I could have appreciated the evolution. I think later I've had to piece together these things, but also, so this is a long, long answer. I hope I'm not rambling on too much, but there's also that because of hot topic and the sort of gentrification of punk or this pop punk sort of thing. Like I would see like the football players in my high school would wear misfits t-shirts. And, and so, so the jocks had sort of been co-opted into this sort of world and mall punk was such a thing that I think to me, I just kind of was like instantly rejected that. And I just felt like, Oh, the, whatever that, that ghost, that skeleton t-shirt is fuck that stuff. <laughs> that's like, that's, you know, maybe that's a very Southern California myopic sort of upbringing where, you know, a band as cool as the misfits, you know, but, but because they were, because you could buy it at the mall, how could that be counterculture? It was already different. So so I kind of had a, a I, I liked things that were challenging. I kind of felt that like going from skate, you know, SST stuff, Minutemen, that there was such a earnestness and such a sense of like um, authenticity that these guys were just playing songs. They weren't about trying to fit in. And I kind of took that and ran with that. I think jumped over post-punk into kind of contemporary world where I got into bands like Slint and, you know, like Jesus Lizard and these kinds of things that were, um, sort of happening at the same time, blonde redhead is fit in there. And I was listening to a lot of like college radio. I was able to get some college radio from uh, Claremont colleges and sort of wanted to see what was, what was um, contemporary and underground and challenging and noisy. So I would see, um, and you know, like go to uh, Nels Klein had this thing that was called new music Mondays. And so it was this kind of freak out like avant-garde improvised guitar stuff. And things like that that were definitely heady and above above my sort of understanding as a kid. But what I understood was that the 10 people that were there were weird and they were challenging. <laughs> and it was definitely I felt like this was going against the grain. Like this was punk. This is what I understood as like a, a scary, um, confrontational, aggressive underground style of expression. Not uh, kids with bleached hair or blonde hair and, uh, you know, whatever, jumping around on MTV that felt like it had already kind of passed. So I kind of put punk in a very sort of underground noisy sort of definition. It, it's funny though. You mentioned Jesus lizard and what was the other band you said too? Another, blonde redhead, blonde, blonde redhead, but there's another a yeah. third but it, uh, slint slint. You know, they, yeah. they all kind of come out of punk rock too. And it's almost like Absolutely. it's, it's, it's very much in keeping with that kind of SST stuff. Like it's the, like the, the, the rise of the American alternative, scene i guess like that point too right right yeah yeah also those sst bands it's amazing to see the bands that kind of you know got brought over like dinosaur jr like sonic youth like yeah you know screaming trees screaming trees like all those sound garden sound garden and stuff like that but it was very much like a like an adult version of of punk rock as opposed to hardcore which at that point was you know like youth of today or or judge or chain of strength or or you know the straight edge stuff or or yeah. even like more like as you're saying like more kind of like you know uh more you know epiphat jockier kind of stuff that was also happening yep. simultaneously 
Yeah, I did. I, I went to this one concert. And it's funny. because I, I know you're going to take talk to my partner in life, uh, Dean Spunt. <laughs> yeah. And he comes from kind of the other side of things. Like we're hardcore and, and uh, you know, minor threat. We're sort of the, his epicenter. So I've, I've what I we've we've informed each other over the years on the many long, long van drives with sort of <laughs> I've, I've, I've come to understand where his roots are. And I think he's come to understand where my roots are a little bit. We're not necessarily we were uh, against each other's we weren't against that stuff i think there just wasn't that that um prime primordial you know 12 year old adolescent brain sort of like imprinting on it if you you know what i mean you get you hear that stuff at 12 years old and it just sticks with you for the rest of your life mm-hmm. and you don't know why it's your godhead but it is it's just sort of that that was the right age at the right time to hear those things and we kind of had different places and so i've he's i mean he's you know he played me the misfits on on tour and i, I understood that i was like oh Oh, this is this isn't uh, you know this jock jams you know kind of thing. Like there is something there is something I I like horror movies. I kind of like this Elvis sort of you know horror stuff that I would hear so many other incarn- incarnations of down the road. I'm like oh, I trace it all back to there. Okay. Um, but oh, I was gonna say I was gonna tell you. Sorry, uh, uh, there was a, a concert called Board in South Bay that took place at Cal State Dominguez Hills at the Velodrome mm-hmm. where they ride bicycles, and it was I think kind of a precursor to what warp tour would become. And they had, you know, skate ramps and bands. And it was something that, you know, again, growing up in Southern California, like and being into skateboarding, there was so much of this kind of just music and events and things like that around. And, and I just wanted to go to see live music as much as I could. So, uh, speaking of Brian Baker, you know, earlier we were talking about, I've, I've probably seen Bad Religion like seven times. <laughs> For a guy that doesn't know a single lyric or a single song or care anything about Bad Religion, I saw them from 91 to 99, probably at least seven times because <laughs> they were just always at these events or these things. So how old and, were you uh, when you went to your first show? 91? You must have been like... like I was 10. 10? Holy shit. Yeah. So that's the benefit of having older brothers. Having two older brothers that were, you know... Uh, by that point, they were, they were had graduated. They were probably twenty two to twenty four. Okay, my older brothers, and so my mom, you know, and I was really getting into music, and and so the, my first concert was a benefit concert, uh, Rock for Choice, um, and it was at the Palladium, and I remember I was in maybe eleven, maybe so maybe ninety two, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, it was I, I really loved White Zombie. which if you look if you go through the history of white zombie they come from a new york underground sort of art rock sort of background they have their bona fides but by that point i just knew them from beavis and butthead and mtv well you know and and, and, you know rob zombie did the art for the vatican commandos moby's hardcore band second seven inch (laughs) it makes total sense absolutely i I just saw a picture of moby and rob zombie on his ranch so there we go so that makes (laughs) they probably have a long shared history exactly going back to then yeah. Um, so, so I really wanted to see White Zombie, but it was also Free Kitten. Uh, Julia Fritz mm-hmm. and Kim Gordon's band were playing King Missile, the band for you know the detachable penis. single detachable penis. Yeah, they were playing um, uh, STP, not the Stone Temple Pilots, but the British S- the girls group STP were playing that. And um, I should look up. Then maybe it was Bad Religion or something. It was like the randomest of, of lineups. Did L seven bro- play it by any chance? Maybe maybe L seven. Yeah, I wonder if I can even look this up. Yeah, L seven could have played that one. I know there was. They played some others. Yeah, because um, I just watched the L seven documentary the other day, and they talk about a big Rock for Choice show in L A. So it might. I don't know if it was that one. Probably were multiple of those types of events. I yeah, think. yeah, there were a lot of these kind of events. Um, oh, okay. Oh, I found it. Let's see here. It was actually, oh, geez, 
So it was 93. So okay. it puts me at 12. That's better. That makes more sense. Okay, I'm not 10 years old. Good. You're still uh, you know, a kid. In your mind, though, you, you still feel like, yeah, you just feel like a kid. Um, Rockford Choice, Hollywood Palladium. That doesn't have the whole lineup here. Uh, so, let's see here. Anyway, anyway, so that was my first show. But I, but, uh, but I remember, yeah, it just definitely feeling crazy and just being so excited. So what kind of music there. were your brothers into? Were they into like that, that SST skate rock kind of stuff or were they into like totally. other stuff? Yeah. So yeah, they were definitely, uh, into, you know, Sonic Youth, Nirvana, mm-hmm. uh, L7, um, and then Jane's Addiction, which, mm-hmm. which was kind of huge in Southern California. Um, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, part of that. I definitely heard a lot of that music kind of driving around in my brother's car, you know, going to the mall or just going to school and stuff. He'd be always be kind of blasting music. It's really interesting. The one thing that's come up uh, over doing this podcast for me is like the, the geographical differences in the way music's kind of taken up or the way different bands and scenes were kind of looked at. Like, you know, you bring it up right there with Jane's addiction. Like, you know, that they were obviously a huge band everywhere um, at a point, but I imagine in LA it was magnified immensely being the local band. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the kind of stuff that, uh, yeah, you wouldn't really, yeah. It just, it's, there's, there's the regionality of it, which I, th- which I think doesn't exist as much now, mm-hmm. but cause I've talked to other people and I was like, like, you know, like, like Jane's addiction, you know, if you, you know, from another time period or another part of the, another part of the country, this wasn't as ubiquitous. Yeah. I feel like Jane's addiction were just huge. And like, you just understood like it's the biggest, but you know, band in the world also like fishbone things, you know, things like that. I just assumed everybody knew yeah. all yeah. about those things. Yeah, well, and I guess that's also like they're an inland inland empire band too, right? Fishbone. I think so. Riverside, I think there was maybe. Yeah, which is not far from from where I was. There was a place called the Showcase Theater in in uh, Rialto, which is out near Riverside, and I saw a lot of shows there. And ska, third wave ska, was definitely in full raging effect <laughs> during this time. So I think that's what I'm saying. Like punk ska, voodoo glow skulls, a lot of these kinds of you know epitaph, um, fat wreck records things were very prevalent. So I think I had to sort of parse things out into def- different into subsets of punk and the one that really appealed to me was the sort of the noisier stuff that sort of and the maybe stuff coming out of the am rep touch and go sort of world mm-hmm. seemed a little bit more uh confrontational than um some of the the, the liberty spiked sort of fat wreck things well it's funny because like once again it's that regionality because like when you brought up football players wearing misfit shirts like that's something that I don't think exists as much in other parts, <laughs> like certainly didn't exist in <laughs> yeah. my high school. Um, but I think it's like, because like we're talking about, like that was like almost mainstream music at a point in Southern California. Yes, exactly. That's good. That's, that's really how it felt. I mean, even, you know, like the black flag bars and, you know, I mean, there was just, there it got passed down from brothers to the other brothers. I think there was a lot of that kind of re- regionality sort of thing. And just the aggression of it, you know, I think it's sort of tr- translated and mutated into, into weird sex of, of culture in Southern California. So where were you getting into kind of this sort of more esoteric kind of weirder side of stuff from? So I also, so my brother also had friends who played in bands that were kind of along those lines. And my brother played guitar, but he wasn't in any bands, but he had friends that were in those, in these types of bands. So they would play places like the Alligator Lounge in LA or Jabberjaw. And, uh, and so I would kind of hear their music. They'd practice like in our garage sometime. Like my parents were pretty cool with that. Like my brother had a drum kit and guitars and my brother, my brother was also, um, uh, hard of hearing. 
but so my so my mom really encouraged him to play music because he had an interest in music but being a hard of hearing was different so the the the, the amount of volume in our in our house I, I came came to learn later was not usual okay no, it wasn't, he would always listen to his music very loud and he could hear the, he could feel the vibrations of stuff as much as he could hear it you know and so I think I kind of got used to that just sort of seemed very normal to me this music should be really loud that's how that's how I grew up hearing it that's why my brother would listen to music and he'd play music and he'd have his friends jam in the garage so i just always felt like oh yeah it should be loud and i think part of that i look back oh oh right well he wasn't he couldn't hear a lot of it so they were kind of you know he was listening to it in a different way and i think that just sort of seeped into how i heard stuff as well i was definitely feeling music as a kid and it was exciting you know volume is just exciting <laughs> as it's, anybody because it, it feels aggressive there's just there you know no matter what you do if you play it loudly that changes it changes the whole dynamic of the scale of the song well it's almost like volume is an instrument i guess too right like the feel to- totally feel, yeah yeah totally so 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 i had some introductions from those guys would every once in a while They're like oh you like this you should listen to this and i'd get you know seven inches or t- cassettes or mixtapes from different you know friends or people around my brother's sort of world um and then uh and then there was also the college radio station the k kspc was the college radio station from claremont which is the kind of cool college town just near pomona uh, it was before the glass house was there so we, there wasn't even cool shows with his coffee shops and things like that um so i could kind of tune in on my little radio at night to try to hear you know, different things. And I would, and I would write down names of bands. I would like keep a notebook by my radio. And if I liked, if I liked the way it sounded, I'd write it down like, Ooh, Olivia tremor control. Okay. Well, I don't know what that is. And then, then they had Rhino records in, in um, Claremont, which is a cool record store, independent record store. And I remember going through there and with my little list of stuff I wrote down from the radio and going through the seven inch bins. Cause I couldn't afford to buy whole records. And I just, you know, I just wanted to ch- check stuff out. And I remember finding, you know, blonde redhead seven inches and Olivia tremor control. And Beck, you know, things, you know, I was like, Ooh, Beck, this, that, that guy from the radio actually has cool, has cool music. You know, <laughs> I, was, I, I was underground in a way. I think my, my, remember my brother's friends telling me like, Oh yeah, that guy is on the radio. He also, he played, I saw him play a show at Jabberjaw with just a, uh, um, a, a leaf blower. So oh, I remember yeah, Beck that, sounding <laughs> kind of cool. They have a video of that too. And I think that's in the loser video, right? <laughs> is it? I don't know. I don't know. I remember my brother's friends kind of all being not necessarily jealous, but kind of like, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. That, that weirdo, the guy that just comes down and does weird stuff at shows. Like now he's on the, and I was on the radio. He's on MTV. Like, fuck that guy. There was kind of that vibe about it. Yeah. No, it's funny. Cause he, I guess would have been part of that scene, right? Like he has that, he's on a compilation with Jay church and he's got like that record on bong load, I think. Yeah. So I my brother's friend's band was called 747. Okay. And they, um, they were on a demo listen seven inch and it had four, four oh, bands. Yeah, on Yeah, like absolutely. Their, yeah. So it was their band, 747, um, liquor cabinet, which was kind of a doom metal band. I think it was a joke band that Beck was in. And then, uh, uh, grasshopper from Toronto. And- the grasshopper from Toronto. That's my G-hopper. friend. Yeah, Grasshopper's <laughs> my homie. He owns Grasshopper Records. I I have that that's seven so inch. That's you have that so, seven inch. Oh okay. my god! The demo listen so seven funny. inch. <laughs> yeah. So that to me, I mean, that's the kind of thing where, like, you know, my brother's friend were like, "Oh, give this this geeky little kid a, a seven inch." Sure, we have we have some. Yeah. And but I mean, I looked at that thing like the Bible. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, I know these guys." Like that's that guy right there, and he gave he's on this record. The music he made is on a record. Like that to me just was you know insane. Yeah. Oh, it's total demystification when you when you have that experience for the first time. 
totally. And it just makes you feel like you could do it. Like mm-hmm. you see a person and they're a real person and they're on a real record. And he later went on to the, um, play drums in this band Chokebore. They were on AMREP and had opened up for Nirvana. Um, so he, yeah. So this is my, this is my brother's uh, best friend, Mike. He was a drummer. And so I kind of got a lot of, um, you know, influence and stuff from him. I remember I actually, uh, yeah, so Chokebore was a cool band. Those guys were all from Hawaii, but they lived in LA and were on AMREP. Um, whoa, whoa, then, wait, wait a second. I, I fucking first of all, I love Chokebore. Like I oh, love. Okay. It. I, yeah. not, I, think, <laughs> I think they have two singles on AMREP, maybe. That I, oh, I, at least I only have two. I think. But uh, yeah, I, I love that band. I had no idea it was members from Hawaii. I just you know have the seven inch and thought. Oh yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, so I got to kind of know those guys while I was in high school. So this fast forwards to kind of through middle school and like White Zombie. Then you know, then now I'm listening to stuff on the off the radio. But when he joins Chokebore, I remember he asked me to put all of their records on a cassette for him because he didn't have a cassette player or he didn't have like a thing where you could record from record to cassette. <laughs> so he gave me all the because he needed to practice them. So he's like, can you put these on a, a cassette so I can listen on a Walkman and, and learn the songs? Because like, I just joined this band. So I was, so it was cool. So I got to like listen. And I'm probably 14 and I have a four track and I'm just, you know, kind of learning like, sure. Yeah, I'll make a, I'll make you a, a you know mix of all their records. So that I got to listen to that. I was like, wow, these guys are really cool. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I helped him do that. And then later, I think after a few years, he was. Uh, they were going to re- record stuff, but they didn't have any money to record a demo. But they, he knew I had my little four track, and I'd been recording a lot, mm-hmm. and in high school. And it's like, oh my, you know, my my friend's little brother, you know, can record us on a four track. And I think they all kind of got a kick out of that. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I recorded some demos for Chokebore at some oh. point, like in his in his in his mom's garage. I think the, the guys drove out and it was fun. And then some of the guys, James was his roommate for a while. So I remember I would go crash at his house. Now that I'm almost once I. Once I graduated high school, I moved in with Mike because uh, he was going to be on tour all the time with Chokebore. So it's like, oh, yeah, cool. I have the teenage kid, you know, just kind of come watch the watch the apartment. Um, but his but yeah, the bass player, John uh, uh, James, lived there. And so I would kind of get to see those guys. I saw them open for Agent Orange at the Roxy. Mm-hmm. I saw it. <laughs> so I got to go to a lot of Chokebore gigs. When That's in town. awesome. That's yeah. So, would they play with <laughs> other AMREP bands like would other AMREP bands come through? It's it's like um the cows yeah and cosmic psychos I remember oh, they did tours with them yeah from I, Australia I didn't get to see, yeah I didn't get to see that show for whatever reason but I remember they were toured with those guys in uh, lowercase Ahmad Wasif they I did see them I did see lowercase play awesome and um yeah so I got to you know I mean I kind of definitely got a, a, a backdoor into a whole other kind of sub subgenre of music through through my brother's best friend. So what were those shows kind of like? Cause like, you know, there's, there's, you know, it's been brought up on the show a lot of times, like a lot of those bigger punk shows were incredibly violent still in LA at this point. What were like noise show and noise rock shows kind of like back then? Um, definitely not violent. It def- I mean, if anything, kind of, kind of boring and intimidating, <laughs> okay. intimidating, you know, it was a lot of kind of that Spock haircut, you <laughs> yeah. know, sort of this math rock sort of looking thing, like button up shirts, you know, buttoned all the way up tight shirts and polyester pants. Um, but not violent. No, I mean, kind of, kind of, if anything, sort of, you know, navel gazing, you know, sort of uh, whatever. Uh, I guess if any, the worst part about it would be maybe everyone's a little bit full of themselves or think everyone's standing around thinking they're so cool because we're at a cool show. (laughs) But uh, to a, to, but to a teenager, you know, younger kids seeing all that, like, I just thought these guys are all the coolest people in the world. Like, wow, look at them. They're all so weird. It, just, it felt weird, you know, and there are probably people trying to be weird 
but or just being just you know buying thrift store clothes and being broke. Yeah. But um, but to me, it just yeah, it was, it was hugely influential. I, like it's funny that that whole like LA scene that was kind of happening there. Like obviously, I knew the Jabberjaw from the seven inches that came out. Um, I think yeah. Amrep did that series, but it wasn't until I got Brian Turcott's book that he did about the mm. Jabberjaw. And I kind of looked through that. And I'm like, Oh my God, what a cool oh, yeah. little scene. Yeah. And it was a huge influence on the smell, which would again, you know, it's kind of go on to what, where I sort of was able to first start playing music live. But, um, but yeah, it was like, it was huge in LA. It was really one of those kind of first sort of places. It was, you know, all ages, no booze. And, and just, I think it was the right place in the right time. I think LA had a scene that was post the Hollywood, you know, sunset strip post guns and roses of whatever that whole thing was, you know what I mean? And sort of an alternative to that. And I think that timed up right when Nirvana was sort of made the transition from underground to above ground and sort of got that sort of attention, you know, when all, well, all eyes were on the underground now, I think they were sort of the right place, the right time. So who are some of the other local bands that early on, you know, you remember seeing, like, obviously, I guess before Chokebore, like Celebrity Skin, were like their band you saw? Or? <laughs> no, I never saw them, but my brother had uh, the uh, sticker and he definitely had their, he had their records. I remember Celebrity Skin records. Um, uh, what so, um, other, other local bands? I mean, some of it, uh, oh, I saw Mountain Goats, John Darnell played a, a coffee shop in Pomona, um, just acoustic. And I remember thinking that was amazing because there was there was that kind of that dichotomy of like either loud harsh noise or like heavy sort of amrep stuff, but then also you know real mellow folky sort of things were going on in coffee shops in Pomona. So I remember seeing a uh, Mountain Goats show and buying a twelve inch from him there, like that was really cool. There was something there was something sort of disarming, you know, about something so open and so sort of fragile. Um, so I saw that show and then you know. Um, I think of what else ever made it out there. Uh, my brother's good friend, Sean Sullivan had a band called Moonwash symphony. It was kind of a psych Paisley underground sort of vibe, Okay, which was, you know, big in that late, late eighties sort of transition into the nineties. Uh, so, but Moonwash, so, but Sean ended up, uh, playing with Elliot Smith later on. And he, uh, he would go on to have a kind of career as a side man called golden boy. So there was, that's, that's funny how that world sort of, yeah. those things, changed into each other but um but yeah a lot of you know kind of felt like backyard parties and shows and then and then you know we'd go into hollywood i i sort of spearheaded my own sort of interest i would try to drag people along with me to, to bigger shows in hollywood like i remember the seeing like um john spencer blues explosion at the palladium and uh or not the palladium the palace and uh that was that was awesome and our stereo lab and Blonde Redhead, I probably saw Blonde Redhead live three or four times in the 90s. I remember uh, Joe Preston was selling merch for them. I didn't know <laughs> Joe at the time, but looking back, I was like, that guy had such a face. Like, Joe has a face you remember from Thrones. <laughs> yeah. And I remember later meeting him at The Smell. And I was like, I think he was selling, you know, T-shirts and records for Blonde Redhead on tour. <laughs> um, so not necessarily local bands, but just bands, you know, that, that you could you could go see. Yeah. No, it's funny. I, the reason I'm kind of wondering about the local scene is because I always, I'm fascinated. Like what, what do you think the direct sort of precursor was to the scene that would kind of spring up at the smell? Cause obviously the smell was doing, I see. yeah, just like what were, what, like, what were the bands that were kind of like inspiring you to play music? Like other than these bigger bands that were coming through, were there any like local bands you were seeing that were kind of like, you know, you think kind of directly predecessors to what would come? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's also, you know, uh, 
similar to like, you know, with just being part of the skate scene, I had a buddy that owned a, a skate shop uh, where we lived and he had um, a game, uh, like kind of a, an all day skate jam concert thing going on mm-hmm. were the, where people would set up ramps and obstacles and you could skate and bands would play. But I remember I saw Game Face. I don't know oh, if you yeah. know that band. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, Face to Face. Okay. I think it was really fun. He was good friends with the guys from Face to Face, and Dean and I definitely bond over this. And I'll be I'll be curious if he brings it up. But he and I can uh, don't turn away. I think we could, at any point, if anybody ever said sing that song, it's probably a little known fact that No Age could could probably sing. You know, <laughs> don't turn away. You don't know what you're giving. You don't know what you want. It may take you years to find out. So I remember seeing those guys like in a parking lot. In front of a skate shop, <laughs> and just be, being so excited, I think I got kicked in the head with a with a boot. What, um, what, sorry, just uh, not to cut you off there, but like, yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, the Descendants not being, you know, something that connected with you. What was it about face to face? Because like, I think the sonic similarities between the two. Oh, it's absolutely. I mean, if if I would have heard um, Bikeage or you know any number if i would have heard descendants at that exact moment in my life i would have loved that band (laughs) or if i you know or if i would have heard replacements at that age i would love that band yeah they just happen to be the band (laughs) you know (laughs) they're not necessarily the most original band in the world or or even um social distortion if i would have heard social distortion at that moment there's any number of bands that i could have heard and i would have fallen in love with but they just happen to be when you talk about a local show and, and i went to just go skate and but like, oh, these bands happen to be playing, but the, their kind of harmonies and and whatever it just it just clicked in that kind of mm-hmm. way that's embarrassing to admit now. <laughs> but but I, um, there's but no embarrassment there's here, show. Randy. There's no embarrassment yeah, okay. on that, any of that stuff. Um, I, I think. Yeah. On, well, I mean, I'm surprised how many how many records they've put that song on. Like Dean and I have looked up their <laughs> their discography, a mini a tour. Like, wait, they put that song on again? Now it's a live record. Now it's this record. Then they re-recorded it. Um, <laughs> But uh, but anyway, yeah. So I saw that. So the precursor to the smell stuff, I just feel like there was um, there was you know like the, the KXLU sort of scene mm-hmm. that was happening. Um, I saw this band Uphill Gardeners um, play at uh, Alligator Lounge, and then they had a, um, a record release show at the No Name Cafe, which used to, which was um, oh god Zen's mom uh, Hong, the Hong Kong Cafe. Yeah, used to be oh, yeah. called Hong Kong Cafe, then became the No Name Cafe. Now it's a subway stop, but um, <laughs> but I remember going to the record release show, and I thought they were going to play live, but they just played the record over the over the you know PA or whatever, and and the guys just hung out. But in that band, Uphill Gardeners was Jarrett Silberman, who would go on to kind of be one of the founding members of The Smell, mm-hmm. and uh, also he played in Liars when we toured with them. He's played in Young People. Uh, and be- has become a good friend. But I, at the time, I remember being, you know, probably sixteen or seventeen. And then also Bob Bruno, who yes. is now in the the Mighty Best Coast band. Yes. And, but also from Polar Goldicast, I remember meeting Bob at that time. You know, being a teenager and uh, and yeah. So you know, what I mean, so there was those those feelings of or those people that kind of would hang around. I'd see Dave Stone at noise shows, and then I'd see him at the door. You know, at the smell. And Dave was played in the Melvins and Unwound, and we've played with him. I've, you know, he's become a good friend as well. But I definitely remember being intimidated and seeing these kind of who I'd perceive to be luminaries of the scene, sort of out at different places. And uh, yeah, I remember even I, I remember seeing Dean like passing out zines, like selling zines in front of shows before ever meeting him. You know, it was just these, these people that would just be around at shows in front of shows and things. 
So it kind of feels like it was, you know, the smell scene, you know, once again, from an outsider observer, but just having talked to some people that were there, like it was the next wave of kids. Like, you know, you're obviously ahead of the curve because you're, you're going to shows so much younger, but like, this was the next wave of kids that kind of coalesced and became like the inheritors of the scene almost in a way, or a certain part of the scene at least. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, one thing I should say too, I think the, the one of the reasons I was able to kind of get away with going to so many shows and doing so many things was my brother, uh, passed away when he was 25 mm. and I was, I was uh, 13. Okay. So I kind of got adopted by his scene of friends. Mm-hmm. I think they sort of saw that like after, after he passed away that I was sort of, you know, I think, you know, very desperately trying to follow in his footsteps mm-hmm. of like, you know, with skateboarding and playing guitar. And I sort of, I inherited all my brother's records and clothes and, and, you know, guitar and everything. And that's sort of why I started, when I started to learn to play guitar. So I think all of his friends could kind of see the struggle I was going through as a young teenager. Mm-hmm. And so the ones that were still around um, kind of picked me up and sort of adopted me. I was kind of the, the kid brother to a lot of, of these funny musician skateboarder type people. So I feel, I feel really grateful for that. I think that's, I don't think I'm not, I'm, I don't mean to say like, I don't mean to come off as I was just so cool, man. I was just a cool guy that could, <laughs> could hang out. And as a, as a kid, I was a very dorky, probably very annoying kid, but I think they all took some pity on me uh, and that's why they, they kept me around. Um, so, but yeah, but in terms of the, 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 the smell, I remember first going there, um, when it was in the North Hollywood location to see Mike Watt play solo. Oh, he, yeah. um, I, uh, I, I saw, I saw like it was in the back of a newspaper at the LA times, like the calendar section mm-hmm. <laughs> and they would have listings and they would say, Mike Watt playing solo at the smell on Lincolnshire. And so I convinced a buddy to, to drive into Hollywood with me. And, uh, and we went and I was just so blown away. It was just this guy that I'd seen at Lollapalooza, you know, on the side stage of Lollapalooza a few years before. And now here he is just him with a, with a like Hawaiian shirt, you know, and, uh, (laughs) and flip flops on (laughs) just playing, you know, improvised bass noise. And then I went and then afterwards in the parking lot, you know, he probably took about 20 minutes, you know, to talk into a group of of kids. Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember just getting to, to talk to Mike Watt and I just saw him play. There was no stage. There was no lights. There was no big club. There was no big festival thing. It was just a guy playing music. And instantly that was my like lightning bolt to the head of just going like, I can do this. And I remember telling my buddy, cause he and I had a band sort of, and uh, I was like, dude, we should do this. We can play here. This is a thing. And he kind of had the feel. He was a little nervous. He's like, I don't know, man. And it instantly to me, I was like, what do you mean? I don't know. There's no difference between our bedroom where we play every day and this place here the smell it's the same thing if we could play there we could play here and uh and so that was that was that was my big impetus but it would take a few years until i actually did that because i was trying but i didn't feel like i could do it on my own i wanted to play in a band so i uh so yeah it was just interesting so i would just record four track stuff and just do do like bedroom sort of noise things for for another couple of years and then um and then met a guy through a friend a friend of a, a, a girl that I knew and I was dating this, this guy like, Oh, he plays music. You should play with him. And so I, I met with him and he had a band called the count, which was like a power violence sort of band from the, from the inland empire. And uh, they needed a bass player. And so this is my first time ever hearing power violence. I didn't know who the locusts were. I didn't, I had no, I had no interest or no knowledge of it, but what they were doing is they were going to play live. They were going to play live shows. And by that point I was so burned out and playing in the bedroom. Yeah. I just wanted to play live. So like, sure. And so they gave me a bass and, I, and like, they showed me the part with, with big quote, air quotations, the part, you know, the riff was basically move your hand as fast as you can up and down the bass. And so, uh, <laughs> and I think, it, so I just started college at that point And, 
So, and my, my mom was going, had, my parents had got divorced and my mom had cancer. And so I was trying to go to college and live in Hollywood and, and the chance to just go like play loud, fast screaming music for like 15 minutes, like drive, drive an hour <laughs> to a place to, to play for 15 minutes and break all your instruments sounded awesome to me. Those are like the cathartic thing. We played headline records. Yeah. I don't know if you know this oh, place absolutely. with uh, a head. I think yeah. Dean, that's when Dean first remembers, I think meeting me was he came to see the count play at headline. And I just would like, just punch the bass till my hands were, were bloody. And, uh, and just throw throw it on the ground, and the, our set was over. Um, you know, you mentioned Mike Watt earlier. Like, he's got to be the coolest dude ever. You know, still insane, right? Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. And like, how many people did he inspire by hanging around the show afterwards in the parking lot and just talking to him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lifelong of, of inspiration. You know, people talk about the like the whatever you know, Joy Division show that you know. Everybody, there's only 15 people there, but everybody that saw it went on to form a band. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think Mike Watt is like a living uh, version of that. Like every, yeah. anybody who's ever talked to Mike Watt has gone on to form a band or do something. And he's and he's really weirdly the only accessible person at that point. Like I, you know, I was the same age, kind of at the same time meeting him off Ball Hog. Like from that SST scene, it's not like you'd see Rollins hanging around, or you wouldn't like run into Milo and stuff. But like you'd see no. Mike Watt. Yeah. He's just, he's, there's something so special about him too. I think he's just so, uh, he's, he's so third person, you know, like he'll refer to Watt yeah. in third person, <laughs> yeah. but he's, so there's this weird, uh, you know, kind of narcissism, but also it's so selfless. Yeah. He's yeah. so open. He'll just, he'll talk to anybody like they're his best friend. He'll have his, his, you know, his, his, his way of speaking. He'll give you his whole spiel and he'll do it to anybody, whether you're a kid or a big performer or anybody, he speaks the same to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and that's what it should be, right? Like that's, that's, yeah. a, I think that's why I like, you know, the same, that's one thing I took from punk from meeting him was that like, oh yeah, we're all the same, no matter who you are. Totally. Yeah. No, and I think it can't be, it can't be overstated how important, you know, Mike Watt and, um, and just the Minutemen were, you know, that, the idea of punk is what you make it. That D Boone quote, you know, they put on the sticker and he has on the base is like, it just was so like, oh yeah, just the freedom to be who you are. Mm-hmm. And I just, I've just, I just really took that to heart, meaning it, it, it wasn't uh, a look. It wasn't a thing you bought from a store. It wasn't, um, you know what I mean? You didn't have to have creepers and bondage belts or pants. If you wanted that, that's cool. But you, you could also just wear baggy Levi's and a, and your shirt from school. <laughs> yeah. It didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the whole look, the, the fashion side of punk is just uh, utterly um, disinteresting to me <laughs> from, from, from moment one. I was like, I don't care. And it doesn't matter. It says, it says right there in the rules. It doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter what you look like. It's not about that. Yeah, and that's so, very much like that SST kind of scene, you know? Like, none of those bands yeah. look like capital P punk bands. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love it for that. I think it's yeah. just made it so, there's, the, you know, just the, the this accessibility, which is we're all the same thing. Were you a fan of Ball Hog? Did you listen to that record when it came oh, out? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, it was a huge constant on rotation. I, I knew I knew songs from there before I knew the originals, even. Yeah, same you know, here. Like, oh, it's a cover of that song. Oh, okay, okay. I love it. No, I love that. I, love I, that I still think the version of Tough Gnarl on that one's better than Sonic Youth's version of it. Yeah, right. That was with Carla. Yes, yeah. uh, Boslich singing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She was uh, someone who was super cool, also too. She was always hanging around the smell. Her and Nels when they were together, they were like they did so much for the smell and for everybody there. Like she, yeah. 
Oh, no, no, sorry. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of sidestepped around. No, please. Um, getting into the smell sort of scene. So uh, once the smell moved to downtown, then I would uh, I started to go sh- more shows there. And um, and eventually. Uh, oh, so the band, the count, the drummer from that band and and I, you know, I, I kind of told him I was like, after we played four shows, we played at Reggie's from PCH's backyard. We played showcase opening for the locust. It seemed like we'd done as much as that band could do. Mm-hmm. And uh and uh, I, so I told the, and I told the drummer, I was like, we should actually write songs. We should really try to, I mean, I kind of came from a tradition of like playing music. And I was like, this is just, this is really fun to jump around and break shit, but it's going to get old. It's already getting old pretty quick after four shows. It's like, why don't we actually write a song and play that same song more than once? Um, <laughs> so, so. Uh, Wait, so was it all he, improvised, this band? I mean, maybe they thought there was, it wasn't, but there was no way that it was not all improvised. <laughs> maybe everybody thought they were playing a, a written part, but as far as I could tell, it was all, it was just different every time. Did you guys record ever? They recorded. They had a seven inch before I joined the band. Okay. I don't think from when I was in the band, it, it, it was pretty much on its last legs. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was everybody and everybody kind of felt like they were in, for you know when you see those bands and god bless them because we've all been there but you know where like each member looks like they're in a different band (laughs) (laughs) as much as i say like fashion doesn't matter but like when you're in a i think the the singer again god bless him he was a mod guy (laughs) you know the guitar player looked like he wanted to be in motley crew and then the drummer and i kind of looked a little bit you know kind of garage or whatever just thrift store sort of like skate skate punk thrift store kids okay so it just, you know, it just, it just wasn't, wasn't meant to, to, to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so the drummer and I started this other band wives and, and, or we wanted to play music together. And he said, he's like, Oh, I know this guy, Dean. So the first time I really met Dean, like face to face, like, Hey, I'm Randy. You're Dean. Like he came, Dean came over to my apartment. Um, the one that I eventually took over from the chokeboard guy, mm-hmm. uh, as, and we like flipped my mattress. I just had a mattress on the floor. We flipped it over the window to kind of make some kind of soundproofing and, uh, Dean, and and the drummer and and I all um, pl- practiced. So it was the first time, like, hey, hey, I'm Dean, I'm Randy. Okay, let's play music. And so we started playing music, and that band became Wives. So that you guys just that's like, and you guys had really well, you guys, you you and the drummer had been playing together, but that like you guys just that you're and Dean, you guys didn't hang out first. It was just like let's jam. No, there was no hangout at all. And I think you know Dean uh, was very much uh, a star or very much a, a personality in his world. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of coming from a different place where, you know, kind of coming from a noisy place, but I was also a full-time college student. And so I had no real like, uh, uh, presence in the scene whatsoever. And Dean had a huge presence in, in this sort of, um, uh, scene of, of LA music. So, um, so it was, it was cool. It was cool because we meant we could play shows. So he was like, Oh, let's play a show at the smell. I've booked shows at the smell before. And to me, I was like, Oh, it's been my dream since high school to play the smell. So he, you know, he, he booked us shows there and I kind of learned, you know, kind of met a lot of people through Dean and sort of learned how that world worked. And you could just, you know, volunteer. And once we start playing shows there, then I would volunteer and take money and, uh, and then eventually learn, I wanted to learn how to do sound. And so, as the sound board grew at the smell, uh, I, I helped out and learned how to do sound. I just put mics in front of stuff and run in front of house from doing stuff there. So how did it work back then? Was it just like a, a thing where, you know, like you could book yourself a show or like, cause it, like lots of different types of bands play there, right? Yeah. So it's sort of similar to now. Like, so when I originally started, it was three friends. It was Jim Smith who runs it now and Ara and Jarrett. Jarrett, who was from Young People and Liars and and 
a bunch of other bands. But so it was those three guys, and they just it was there them, and, and, the, and it really it was born out of the need to put on shows because after Jabberjaw closed, that whole scene didn't have anywhere to play. Um, so Jim, Jared, and Ara thought, well, we should make our own place, the kind of a similar coffee shop sort of thing that's all ages using the Jabberjaw model to sort of help fill the void of, of, of you know, those bands, have given those bands a place to play. So that's sort of where it started. And then once it moved to downtown, I think Ara and Jared, you know, after a few years kind of left the day-to-day stuff more to Jim. I think they were pursuing their own artistic creations like Ara as a writer and a poet, and he would do poetry workshops and readings there. And Jarrett would go on to form bands and tour and play more music. But Jim um, was a, is a union organizer and kind of community organizer mm-hmm. by trade. So this, so doing the smell as this sort of community space fell right in line with he wasn't going to go on tour he wasn't going to pursue an academic career he was sort of about working with people and communities so i think that's sort of where the smell as his side project (laughs) fit right in line with what he was doing during the day and that's i think that's why it's lasted so long it's sort of a benevolent dictatorship like jim pays the bills he opens this opens the doors close the doors and if anything is broke he fixes it or he pays to fix it you know it's not like doesn't have to go by a committee yeah. it's a very sort of like one man operation but with lots of volunteers who can cycle in and out like the whole place isn't going to fall apart if if you know a kid can't make it that day there's a there's other kids that can be there so the way it worked was yeah usually if you were there all the time going to shows and you asked jim like hey can i help sweep up can i help take out the trash can i just help and just volunteer it, it later went on to become a formalized um like binder that sits at the front desk where you can sign up to volunteer like every show has like five or six positions that need volunteers to just write their name down for mm-hmm. you know from like taking tickets to um doing sound to you know, helping clean up, um, but in the beginning it was very informal. So we just kind of were just you just hung out long enough, and eventually got put to work. It's very similar to the model of Max Rock and Roll too, where like you had Tim Yohannan as the guy who who ran it, but at the same time it was like very much like a, a collective in the sense that you had a bunch of volunteers coming in, but you you definitely still had that that one kind of person that was like uh, I don't know like a, like a a mass to kind of point the direction almost like you, you almost need yeah. that for, for these things. Yeah, I think so. There's something about that that just sort of makes sense. And I think Jim has a good eye for people and, and he just trusts people, you know, it just takes you at your word. If you say you're going to be there and you're going to be there, there's no contracts. There's no, there's no penalty. If you don't make it, it's just sort of like, cool. Yeah, I get it. But if you also can't make it, also like, yeah, of course you're 16. You got, you got grounded. <laughs> you can't make it to the show. That's fine. We'll have somebody else. I'll call somebody else up to do sound that night. You know, um, so he, yeah, so it's, it became a very kind of cool thing that like, once he kind of got to know us, like, yeah, do you guys want to book shows? And, 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 you know, Dean had already booked some of his earlier bands at the smell in North Hollywood. And so once they moved to downtown, it was, Dean was still booking shows occasionally. And, um, yeah, so we got to, we got to play there and then it, and it just kind of grew out of that. Like, you know, our friends, Dean was dating Jennifer from Mika Miko at the time, and and they started their band. It's like, oh, we, we should, I should book a show with you guys, and so we played a lot of shows there with Mika Miko, and uh, yeah, yeah, just sort of felt this felt very normal, just like a normal thing to do. Like, oh, let's go down and, and just mess around, and we wrote some new songs. Let's go play there. I mean, we we recorded our second seven inch inside the smell because it was we, need, we just needed a place to record. And so was it like when you first started playing there, you first went down to play that first show with Wives there, was there already kind of like a scene around it or was that still kind of forming like what would ultimately become like the scene? 
as one. Yeah, I think I think there were. I mean, it's it, it's it's really interesting. I mean, it, it it goes. It seems like there's every two years, two to four years, there's a new scene that sort of just evolves with them. Um, this is kind of the age of the of the kids that are there, the people that are that come through there. So before before we started playing there, yes, there absolutely was a scene. It was um, it was a little bit older and a little bit scarier from my from my <laughs> point of view, but it was um, uh, yeah, it was um, I'm trying to uh, uh, my, my brain's going blank right now, but it was you know sort of Bob Bruno and Polar Goldie Cats and um, uh, uh, God, young people, Jarrett's band, and um. Uh, the centimeters who were kind of a dirgy sort of um, uh, Nick cave, you know, kind of inspired or, or, you know, associated sort of sound. So it was a lot of, yeah, kind of older experimental sort of things. There was another venue downtown called Al's bar that also was kind of like the, the dark smell, I think in a way where it was a bar <laughs> <laughs> and sort of darker. So, but, so the smell sort of operated in this kind of, it came out of the co- coffee shop, cafe, Jabberjaw sort of world. And that was changing now into the early two thousands. Um, but there was still had that kind of like, you know, poetry readings and, and you know, experimental film screenings and noise, um, uh, Damian Romero, Devin Sarno, Nels Klein, these kind of improv- improvisational free jazz sort of things um, which were, were, were kind of the scene that was the smell before. We, I think in a lot of ways we, you know, some would say we ruined it or we, <laughs> we, we aged it down a little bit and kind of brought more attention than it had previously had before, which was not necessarily an intent. But I think we felt like the younger kids, which is so funny now that we're much older, but, but at the time we were kind of the younger kids and had a lot of energy and it annoyed some of the older people that were, that were stalwarts there and kind of felt like all oh, these kids are taking over this place. It's, they're going to ruin it. But, um, but maybe we, I don't know, but it just felt like a fun thing and Jim was into it. So I don't think Jim thought we ruined it, but I think we definitely brought a lot of energy and younger people down there to kind of take advantage of the scene. Like you guys, you're all, you're kind of, you know, mope, standing around smoking cigarettes, moping and drinking flasks out of your, pockets like very Kerouac or, or um, Bukowski sort of vibe. You're all, you know, a bunch of 25 year olds trying to act like they're grizzled old 50 year olds. And I think we kind of went down there and uh, sort of lit a firecracker in, in the place to a degree of just like, this is fucking fun. This is insane. We can do anything. So let's jump off the walls, do backflips. Like, come on. You kind of need that though. You need that every couple of years to kind of like come back in. Like that's the reason that's the only reason punk rock survives is because all the old people eventually get chased out. Yeah, I think, and it, and it happens to us too, Daniel. Yeah, oh no, definitely. It's, it happened, I, I, I fully acknowledge it, and I like, I, I like to think I went willingly. Like, I like to think I was like, you know what, this is that moment, and it, it has to happen. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I've yeah, I felt that too. I mean, there was a there was a time I I carried a set of keys to the smell, and I told you I was like, can, can, you know, do you want these back? And he's like, no, no, hold on. I was like, I'm on tour all the time. I can't be there. I don't, I don't even know why I have these. And I was like, I'll give pass them on to another kid. Like literally, like the we I remember when Dean and I got our first set of keys to the smell. It was from our friend Anthony. And he like gave us he gave them over like very seriously. Like, you guys take care of this place. Like, don't don't mess this thing up, you little shits. Don't, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, could I pass my keys on to somebody else? And he's like, No, no, just hold on to them. And uh, but yeah, definitely, I mean, it's you know, it it's it's exciting, it's an exciting thing to see. And you realize, like, oh yeah. This is, it's for them now. This is for another, this is for another generation. Yeah. I was there four years ago. Um, and it was, it was wild to go there and be like, wow, this is completely different than I remember, 
you know, and it didn't feel like that long ago for me, but it was probably like yeah. you know, a number of years by that point. But yeah, like it was like a whole new crop of young kids with their own bands and their own scene dramas and their own, you know, issues that they're pushing for. And it was like, wow, this is, it's so awesome that you can have a space and there's so few of those spaces left. And I think it's like such a tribute to that venue that it's still there because, you know, that you can have a space that young people feel safe to just, you know, go there and be themselves. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, it's an, it's an incredible, it's an incredible thing. And there's really all the, all the, all the appreciation and respect, you know, really goes to Jim Smith. You know, he's the one who's put it, who's put in the time, you know, day after day, year after year to keep it, to keep it what it is and keep it pure and not sell alcohol or not scale it up in one way or another, just kind of keep it exactly what it is. One show that's lived on in legend from the smell on this podcast is the, uh, dystopia riot. Were you at that show? (laughs) I wasn't, but Dean was there. He could, he could, he could take that story and run with it. He was, he was at the front door. I've heard, I've heard his, I've heard, I've heard his version of this, of the story for sure. It feels yeah, like you know, you you should have Jim on this. On I want to have Jim on event. Yeah, I'd love amazing. To. Yeah. He's he is such an interesting person. Like having to get having gotten to know him over the years, he's really just like no one else. He's really like so selfless and such an interesting, um, sincere, authentic person. He's quiet. He's a quiet guy, but I bet you could get him talking. For sure, and he, but because he comes from you know, yeah, you've met him. I mean, he, he can he can definitely talk. I think we hung out at Coachella together that one time. I think oh, he came with you guys to Coachella. There you go. Yeah, yeah, and it's been fun though too. I mean, that was one of the things that was kind of fun with everything we got to do. And I think Dean and I talked early on about you know, like if we get to do if we get any opportunities, like we can't. It's not about us. It was never about us. I think as, as Dean and I played music, it was always so much more fun to play with your friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we, any opportunity or anything that we had done where it was like just us, like we played a weird show, like, fuck that, that sucked. We should, we should book the whole show or we should play with our friends, bands, because that's just so much more fun. So early on when we were like getting attention, it was like, well, let's, let's make sure, you know, we should really tell people where we came from. And there's more of us, more people like us out there. And so we made it a point to really talk about the smell and to bring our friends with us to shows. And, and it was really fun. Like when, when we did our first U.S. tour, we, um, we went, we, when we were in New York, Jim flew out because his his friends were he had friends there also like Jarrett from from Young People was young, young people were living in New York then so we all stayed on Jarrett's uh, floor but um but it was just awesome it was so rad that like Jim would come to see us play we and we played uh what's the um uh the Knitting Factory with Casual Dots and Wrangler Brutes and and we got to be we got to be and it was just so fun that Jim flew out to be there for that show too. So it felt like he got to kind of experience stuff. And then when we toured the UK with Mika Miko, he flew out for a week and like jumped in the van with us, you know, <laughs> and just kind of hung out <laughs> and started, saw us play in London. So I, just, I always feel like there was kind of that paternal sort of like um, feeling with Jim as well. Like he got to see, you know, these, these kids that kind of went in there and threw a firecracker in the old, in the old man party. And now, you know, like, cool, come fly with us and come, come hang out and see, you know, let's, let's see how crazy this thing can get. It got, and it's also like, you know, one of the few scenes that really happened, you know, like the fact that like yourselves, Abe Vigoda, Mika Miko, you know, Best Coast, definitely, um, you know, like it's just, it's, it's amazing how many bands came out of that one space that went on to like tour the world and have impact on a global scale. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, health, Ty Siegel, health too, like, Ty, those guys, yeah. you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely been fun. And I think it just, it just, yeah, it really, again, just goes back to Jim, just keeping it really simple. Like this is exa- the, 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 you know, the space does one thing, you know, it just puts on shows, all ages shows for five bucks. It just, it doesn't, doesn't get too involved with itself. 
what was it like though when the media did descend upon it? Like there was that moment where it was like, "This is the new Seattle." Um, <laughs> what like did you? Was that just external? Like it, was it business as usual inside? I, I, you know, I think I think kind of business as usual. Um, there, I yeah, and I remember Dean and I started talking about this a little bit. The the thing that kind of makes the smell bulletproof for from that type of thing is number one, Jim. Jim's kind of a no bullshit guy. He's not looking to be famous. He's not trying to party with with the Kardashians. So that's you know what I mean. So 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 the, he's if he doesn't change, then the place won't change. But the um the other thing is is it's it's not very it's not very sexy. You know the smell is not glamorous. It's not a uh, and it's not this kind of um attractive sort of thing. Like it's literally a shitty club downtown, and you have to go hang out there. And in a, if you want to get involved, if you want to book shows, you have to volunteer. There's a sort of like there's a low barrier of entry, but you actually the one thing you have to do is actually just go there. So if you're too, if you're too cool or too Hollywood or whatever, then it's you know what I mean. Like you can come down for 15, 20 minutes, and you and you just instantly see what it is. You know what I mean? That it's not <laughs> gonna it doesn't it doesn't do much. It just it's as good as what you bring it. You know what I mean? It's it it gives it's sort of that a mirror in that sort of way. Like if you enjoy not drinking alcohol, standing around with a bunch of teenagers, and being sweaty and and hot in a dirty sort of place, and hearing cool weird interesting aggressive noisy music then that's your place but if you don't but if any one of those things don't sound good to you if you want a place to sit down or you want a some air conditioning or a beer then you're, you're already out it's already it's already you know what i mean not interesting for you so i knew as everything was going on it was sort of that feeling of like yeah but things just pass this, this stuff doesn't it's not about it's, it's not gonna it's not going to change anything or it's not going to, it's not going to stay for too long. Cause again, you, you really have to, I don't know. I just remember people asking me like, Oh, can you book a show there? Can you do this? Can I, can I, how do I get involved in the smell? And it's, it's like, it's like, awesome. That's so great. You want to be involved. It's really easy. Just go there, yeah. go there for as many nights as you want and enjoy the bands and get to meet people and just put your hand out and say, how can I help? Yeah. But it was, it's super, super easy to be involved. Like there's no, there's no like secret handshake. There's no cool guy cred. You don't need to say anything. You just go. And you can get involved. There's a book literally on the desk. You just put your name down, and then two weeks later, you show up, and now you're involved. Does that mean? Does that mean you're gonna start a cool band? Does that mean you're gonna sign to Sub Pop? Like, no, I don't know. You know what I mean? That's, but if you want to just be involved in the smell, if that's all you want, if this, if that's your goal, like you can do that. It's weird though how it became like the 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 central point for because like obviously like that Los Angeles area is so huge and has so many people there that there's like so many other little scenes happening kind of simultaneously that are totally. are totally different from it like it, it it almost became like a like a i don't know like a gathering point for a certain type of artistic leaning punk rock kid yeah i think so i think i think you hit the nail on the head too where like la is so huge that it's only one small place and i think that's what was interesting about downtown la at least in the in the early 2000s is that um nobody wanted to be there so it was kind of the yeah. it was it was kind of the like just you know like any artistic community you kind of go you can thrive in the cheap areas you know where nobody wants to be mm-hmm. um and and there were plenty of places. I mean, there were still the Hollywood Strip was still going strong. You know, it's still going strong today. There's you know, there's a million places you can play music at. But this was a very, like you said, very kind of particular artistic um, kind of punk vibe that was going to happen here. It was going to kind of thrive here. I also so, sorry, go cool. 
No, no, no. LA is so big that, you know, you can kind of, you can slice it up in a million different ways. Like if you want to live in LA and never go to Hollywood Boulevard, you can do that and have a really great, interesting life. Or if you want to live in LA and only hang out in Beverly Hills and party with rock stars and and movie stars, you can do that. Like you can, there's literally like seven LAs going on simultaneously on top of each other every 24 seven. And depending who you are and what your interests are, you can find what you're looking for within those things. But again, like I don't care about, about movie stars and I don't, you know what I mean? And so I so rarely interact with that world, but yet they're probably one door away. <laughs> there's probably, you know, literally there's times when like, oh, that's yeah, a big Hollywood thing happening next door. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. But here we are, we're going to play this noise show over here. Like, okay, cool. And you just have different stratospheres of people. Yeah, like it's it's wild. Like I remember staying at uh, Michelle's apartment and uh, Lex Sarquette lived downstairs. Like Michelle from Mika Oh, Mikos. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, wow, like... Hollywood is like in Hollywood. Like it's just around you. Yeah. 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 Dean was always really good at kind of like navigating those worlds and sort of seeing, you know I mean? Like the, the, the the sort of the fun of it all and, you know, being able to hang out with people. Yeah. LA is a funny place like that. And you realize like, you know, a lot of people, you know, and and I guess for, in terms of the smell, it's more like their kids will want to be involved in something. I remember there was something like Duff from Guns N' Roses, like his daughter wanted to play the smell or played there or came to see a show or something that dropped her off. And he mentioned it in an article. He's like, yeah, my kids are like into all kinds of different music. They go to this place, the smell. (laughs) And we're just thinking like, what? Like Duff from, but but knowing his story, you know, he's very much, you know, come from a punk background. Oh, absolutely. he, He totally understood what that was about. Like, of course my daughter should go to this hole in the wall in an alley where it smells like human feces. Like, so that's where, that's where you need to go see your, your, your shows. Well, it's funny. Cause like, you know, I imagine like a lot of parents dropping their kids off there for the first time would be mortified, but it's like your kids are better off and safer than they are at their fucking high school friends party. Totally. 100%. You know what I mean? There's no drugs. There's no alcohol. It's, you know what I mean? It's a very kind of, and it's, and it's, yeah, I don't know. It's nerdy in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? There's like music that's going on there and expression, but I think there's something, but I, you know, Dean and I always, we've talked about this a lot too, is that, um, there was something about the smell that didn't feel so sanitary either. Like literally <laughs> it's dirty and you could, you know, you, you could catch some types of, you know, diseases. If you cut your finger on something, she get tetanus <laughs> shot. But there's like, but there's also that feeling of like, it was still like an, an, an adult area. You were still, you still had to be responsible for yourself and it didn't feel like a teen center where there was like padding on the wall and everything was, was clean. And you, and you had like a, um, a babysitter looking over you. You know, I don't know if you've experienced that and touring all ages spaces around Europe. the country or the yeah. world. Yeah. You're yeah. But even America has got some places that are just very like, Oh, like it just like somehow you guys are doing it wrong. There's too much light or something. There's too much fluorescent light, like turn the lights off and actually make it an interesting place that people want to be like, don't, don't take the, don't take the mystery or the danger out of being a kid. Cause being a kid is, you know what I mean? It's like, it's kind of how you grow is by you know pushing yourself just slightly beyond a, a boundary of of something. I don't know. The smell, I don't know. I think there's just something really magical about it that when other places you see, you're like, okay, now I feel I just feel weird being here. I just got I just got yelled at by a 16 year old for, <laughs> for for doing something. I don't know, for having a marker in my pocket. Because I need to write my set list so I have a marker, but I can't have markers backstage or something. Like, okay, yeah. I give up. What do you <laughs> yeah. want? it's it's uh like you're saying like yeah it's the danger that it still had to it like it was still downtown los angeles like you couldn't just show up and make an ass of yourself because you're in people's actual community 
Right, right. And I think that's what was interesting too. There's a kind of that, that, and I guess that's really what, you know, punk scenes I'm sure all have in common is it's, there's a self-policing sort of element to it. You know what I mean? That people tell, tell you who's, who's welcome and who isn't. And when you're, and when you, when you're not welcome, it's, it's, it's apparent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was it like kind of going around, like leaving that, like, I guess wives toured kind of extensively. Like, what was it like first for you kind of like going on tour and realizing that there's not a lot of places like what you'd kind of been part of building back in LA? Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think it definitely made us appreciate it more to see how weird and special it was. Uh, I think, you know, I don't. Um, I I think it, it it sort of felt. What's a good way to put it? I mean, it feels you know the just the travel itself. I mean, you you kind of know when you first when you're young and you first get out there and you get to go play music in another state, it, no matter where it is, it's just it's, it's it's instantly exciting. You know, there's just something so magical about this. Like this is this is the best um, basement filled with black mold. <laughs> you know, with with literal sewer water dripping down on me like I've ever played in. This is awesome. Uh, did it, what did it feel like? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it, it felt exciting. I think in some ways we sort of brought that vibe with us. Like we were looking for that, like Dean booked all the shows, uh, for wives. So he, he sort of had an eye and, and, and understanding of where we could play and where it made sense. So I think we were kind of sheltered to some degree, you know, from, from anything too weird. We didn't really play big venues or any kind of, you know, like real venues on those first uh, wives tours. Um, So so I think, yeah, I think we kind of just were excited to get out there and play. Um, I'm trying to, yeah, I remember early early on one of the shows I was, uh, yeah, I remember just kind of feeling like, what the fuck? Like, what is this? Like, what are we doing here? And and Dean kind of explaining it to me, like, this is sort of this is what you have to do. We're just going to go play to these like three kids in this, um, you know, in this, in this like skate shop or this parking lot in, in Arizona. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I was like, are we going to get paid? He's like, no, like, <laughs> but we just spent, <laughs> we just spent like $60 getting out here. Like, well, what? And I was like, well, what about tomorrow? What about that? You know, that church basement, we're going to go play in New Mexico. He's like, yeah, no, we might not get paid there either. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, we're fucked. <laughs> we're kinda, he's like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, like this is like what are we do? but but then and then it dawned on me i kind of sat i was like but we got to play music and we got to we're tour we can literally we can say we're on tour and we're, even though we're losing money you know we we were it was like but we're playing music we're, we're doing this thing we, we get to do and that's and that's like the, the magic of it but we definitely um would uh steal from from uh grocery stores and kind of dumpster dive and just had we had big bike messenger bags and kind of all go into to a to a grocery store somewhere in the in the south and come out with a loaf of bread and some some vegan A's and uh, you know tofu uh, tofurkey slices <laughs> and you know and we had we had food we had food for the for the next couple of days. Were you already vegan at this point? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was I was I became vegetarian in in uh, when I was uh, in high school. And then um, vegan when I was in college, I, I volunteered at this um, this farm sanctuary for Thanksgiving one one year in college, and I was already vegetarian. But I think seeing that community and understanding everybody 
that was there to have this and like I was serving food and helping kind of prep food and stuff. And I was just like, Oh, this is such an awesome vegan community. Like I think it was, there was still that kind of suburban foreignness to being vegan. Like I didn't know how people could do it. But once I, after I volunteered there, I was just like, Oh yeah, you can totally be vegan. Like all these people are vegan. All this whole thing is vegan. Like this is great. So that was, I think when I was 20 or 21. And, and I know, I know Dean was straight edge when you guys started, but were you straight edge? Uh, no, no, I had no relationship to straight edge music or as a, as a co- concept. If anything, I was uh, a very uh, a very active uh, alcoholic. Okay, yes, <laughs> but mostly mostly revolving around cheap beer. Yeah, but at, uh, but yeah, looking back on it now, yeah, I've I've been sober for ten years now. So uh, yeah, so but but as a as a kid and in, in college and in the early twenties, no, I was definitely drinking too much. Uh, what what kind of bands would you guys wind up playing with on those early tours? Ooh, we again, Dean booked it all, so he he gets all the credit or all the blame. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> he uh, the um, we uh, we did our first tour. We met up with uh, with um, Lightning Bolt yep. and USA is a monster from uh, I think from like New Orleans through Atlanta up to DC. We played with those guys, and then uh, and then we met up with um, Wrangler Brutes and Casual Dots. Uh, that was Christina Bellotti's band from Quixotic, uh, and Wrangler Brutes was Sam McFeeters and Andy. Do Do you know that that band? Oh, I know Wrangler Brutes definitely. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. What, so, were they? So we met, they were yeah. kind of like a smellish kind of band too, a little bit, right? Kind of, yeah, because Sam would play like the band's recovery project, and, and and his his different bands would I think play at the Smell, and Kundo had a project called Fast Forward that would play a lot of the Smell, and then Andy. I don't know where Andy kind of fit in. I think it's his band, his different bands would probably play there. Um, and uh, yeah. So uh, yes, yeah, so we played with those guys. And then uh, this band, Hale Zucas, um, had Rob Embaum from Eats Tapes or Eats, is it Eats, Eats Skull? Oh, Eats Skull. Oh, yeah. yeah. Eats Skull, Rob. Yeah, Rob was the singer in this band, Hale Zucas. And it was John from, um, from uh, um, A Minor Forest. Okay. Yep. He he played bass in that band, and uh, God, the drummer. I'm forgetting what his. It was kind of a weird sort of super group of of different people. So we played with Helzukas kind of for the rest of the tour, and then um and then our friend Brendan Fowler had this band uh, this project called Bar B A R R. Um, we did our second tour with him for a lot of it. Uh, do you know Brendan? I think his so. Story yeah. at all? He he interned at the Alleged Gallery with Aaron Rose in the nineties in New York. And he, he grew up in Baltimore with, um, with Dave and Noah from animal collective. Okay. So he kind of has, but his project, um, bar is amazing. It's like, it's kind of spoken word rap hip hop to a degree, but very like free jazz. He studied, uh, he studied, um, free jazz drumming in college. But anyway, so we played with, with bar and Mika Miko on the second tour. Um, and then, uh oh and then and then also deer hunter we met deer hunter in uh in um atlanta and really hit it off with those guys so we did shows with those guys and uh um navies which was sean mcginnis from piss jeans his band before piss jeans we um we played shows with those guys and uh yeah so we kind of play i remember the the biggest show i mean i'd I'd be curious what what your show like this if, if you guys had this experience but we played a a college um Virginia, like VCU, we opened up for this band, I Am Spoonbender, and we got paid $300, which was the most insane thing that ever happened to us. 
But I was curious, did you guys have this experience like early on with fucked up? Like, what was your first like show that you were like, oh my god, we got paid more than forty dollars? Uh, we our first show like this is actually like uh, it, it was uh, not a well, it was it was a, we we got paid I think like three hundred bucks maybe um, to play with Rise Against and Anti Flag at a university here in Whoa, yeah, it was it was a incredible show. And as soon as Rise Against went on the stage, we just took all their rider. We're just like, <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> what you should do, right? And now, like, has that ever happened to you? Uh, I think, I think, I think it's definitely, oh no, for sure it's happened to fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah. and it's like, yeah, like, you know, I, I love it. I think, which is the best yeah. thing ever, which I'm always like, of course, please. Jesus yeah. Christ. We're, we're getting on a plane at 5 a.m. tomorrow. We're going to fly <laughs> out. Like, we do not need all this salsa and, uh, in water or beer or whatever, like this fruit basket is next. It's going to go to waste. Please take this shit. When we show up tomorrow, all the same shit will be there. So it's just, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Please, yeah. And if anybody needs any of this stuff. Yeah. I think I've the, the one thing that's like my biggest pet peeve in being in a band from seeing other bands backstage at festivals is when, uh, like, and I can understand people like not wanting people to go in their dressing rooms and stuff like that. But like when someone takes a beer, and they freak the fuck out of them for taking a beer that was completely free to begin with, right? Yeah, it's, like, it's not even yours. It's not even yeah. yours. There's just so many. <laughs> yeah. Beer is like the thing that, like, oh. that's it's easier to find than water backstage at festivals. Yes, like, you're like, exactly. I, I'm, yeah. I'm avoiding it. Like, here, please take <laughs> yeah. all mine. Here, I'll fill up your take cooler all again. Of these. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially yeah, now that you know Dean and I uh, don't drink, but you know, but we'll still get that bucket of beer, even though it's not on our writer. It's just the bucket of beer is just like you said, it's, it's easier to find than water. There's yeah. a bucket of beer somewhere. And uh, I was like, I'd rather just drink the water that's in the ice that that's all just sitting <laughs> yeah, in than, exactly. than drink this fucking beer at this point. But anyway, but yeah, that feeling of like, you know, band, like another band or you sharing a thing or like, yeah, please. Like everybody just drink all of this. Like right now. Yeah. Like, I don't need it here. Take, <laughs> yeah. or take it with you or whatever. Um, yeah. It's yeah. It's so funny. I remember uh, one of these FYF, uh, fest we played dean's dad uh who was a huge personality and was you know s- such a great guy uh he he kind of held court over our back our backstage trailer and i remember like you know people from other bands or people you know the standard group of hanger-ons that are backstage <laughs> yeah. uh these things would, would come in like try to grab a beer and dean's dad would punk the guy like, who are you like what band are you playing like do you, <laughs> do you know my son the fuck? you can't just come in here and have a beer the fuck like but he was doing it just more to just because that's how that's who Doctor Splint was. That's how he rolled. But it was just. But he like he loved it. He loved just having like a whole a whole. You know what I mean? That's the funny thing with these like, opportunities too. Is like the chance to you know n- we got to bring Jim to these places like Coachella or whatever. But also to bring our own family and just see how our family gets to interact with this kind of rock star sort of like environment. I remember my mom and I ate uh, next to Chuck D. We ate lunch next to Chuck D. at um, Coachella. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, mom, this is Chuck D. Chuck D is my mom. And she's like, Oh hi, yes, yes, of course. Yeah. She was she was, you know, really nice. And, and my brother uh got to spot me at at I think that same Coachella. Like I was gonna climb the amps as I as I used to do every show and jump off and I and it but, but it was on a rise, it was on like um flight cases, so they had wheels on it. And I just and I wasn't used to that. You know, everything's gotta get rolled out for those festival shows. Yeah. I just told my brother, I was like, just spot me. Like, I'm gonna climb to the top of this this Marshall stack and jump off. But when, I, when you see me once you see me start climbing, I need you to come back and just spot it for me. Yeah. No, I totally. And, uh, oh, go yeah. on. 
Oh yeah, yeah, no. So yeah, and so so I had him do that, and then and then after that, after the show, then we we didn't find him for like two days. He and then when he finally showed back up, he's like, I was partying with Perry Farrell, which again is his dream come true. You know, being a huge James Addiction fan, like like what happened to you after the show? He's like, dude, you don't even want to know. I met I met Perry Farrell when I was gone. Like, All right, man. I remember that uh, meeting your folks, you guys folks at that show and just, uh, yeah, like I remember like, you know, it was such a, that Coachella is one of my favorite memories ever, (laughs) ever. Totally, right? Paul McCartney, My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, it was like Vivian Girls, us, and then you guys all together. And it was like, what a... What a fun ass show! <laughs> yeah, that was definitely great. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, Bob Mold. I remember yeah. hanging out then. Um, that was the one time, like you're saying, like where that and FYF Fest, like those fests, where it feels like, especially in that kind of Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles or Southern California area, I guess with Coachella, you have yeah. all those celebrities. Like that's what the one time that it was like, oh, the worlds are are coming together. <laughs> like David totally. Hasselhoff's backstage. <laughs> oh that's amazing um i always remember too dean's family was always so good because his mom owned a silkscreen shop and his his brother runs it now so they would make like unique one of a kind like whatever shirts they had laying around the shop they'd make their own no age shirts (laughs) and so his family would just travel so (laughs) hardcore all with like giant like bright green or like weird jerseys like just what because his mom would be printing like soccer jerseys and if they had a leftover one or like you know shirts for a bake sale at at a elementary school or something you know what i mean just like making these suburban kind of like shirts and she would just have leftovers and print big no age ones on them so his family all had these unique weird one-off um sure that they would all wear them backstage it was just awesome i think it was, <laughs> like, it was the lime green them. i think it was the lime green shirts at coachella that year yeah i remember that and then but his dad again i mean i can't say enough things about dr spun his dad was a chiropractor and a doctor and uh but he would like he just he knew how to have a crew you know, what I mean, it was it was the family, but also his buddy who would like hook, hook him up with free cable TV or whatever. Now he's got to be there at Coachella too for some reason. Or his other, <laughs> you know, what I mean, the, the other friend that's the that's the gardener, like he's got to be there. Like everybody just felt like there was a crew of people. It was so yeah, it was always so funny to kind of see. And I, I would let Dean arrange his own backstage kind of thing. Like whatever, dude. I just need free tickets for my mom and, and brother. And, you know, I was like, I just, you, whatever the right, you can have the rest of the guest list spots. I know your dad's going to bring seven people. <laughs> I remember talking to his dad about, uh, Dave, uh, from chopping block. Who he was oh, right. The guy yeah. Shop. Dave Keck. I heard that. I've heard these stories. Yeah. <laughs> Which to me was the wildest shit ever. I'm like, wow. If you know a power <laughs> violence legend, you definitely have a, a diverse group of friends that you're hanging out with. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, he's, yeah, he's an awesome guy. <laughs> Um, so I guess I could talk to you forever. Would you come by at another point in the future for a part two? Oh, dude, I would love this. This is great. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. I forgot. We have a record coming out. It's called Goons Be Gone. It's a new record. I'll plug, <laughs> I'll plug that. Don't worry. Oh, okay. That'll get plugged in the beginning and the end. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's just amazing when you look at like, you know, like, and I've had so many people out of that scene on here. Like what a, what an amazing moment of creativity for for like punk and indie bands that was kind of like that early 2000s mid 2000s los angeles scene yeah yeah i mean it's hard i don't want to be the old man look you know looking back at the glory days or this or that but i don't know i definitely i definitely it was fun for us and i think what was interesting is it it, it was really was self-generated it didn't really feel like it was hopping on the heels of something else or what the next big thing kind of was 
we weren't trying to we weren't trying to sound like a disco band. We weren't trying to sound like a garage band. We weren't trying to rip off the hits of the seventies or eighties or you know what I mean. It just it felt like a it kind of it was an organically generated interesting kind of moment of a lot of weird bands. My favorite thing was, you know, we play all these, sh- you know, you ask what bands we played with, but we play with like weird, you know, be a hip hop thing and then like a jazz band and then like a rock thing and a punk or whatever, you know, just it definitely all felt like it wouldn't fit in, but spiritually and or creatively it all sort of made sense. Yeah. Like I love, I think that's such a, you know, well, that's truly what punk was in the beginning, right? Like it didn't have to be a sonic you know, certain thing, it was like a lot of stuff fell under that punk umbrella from throbbing gristle to, to, you know, the specials. Yeah. 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 I, I yeah, that's what I think was, that was always our, and even like making records or how we, how we operated as no age. The idea was to just make it sound like a, one of your favorite mixtapes. Yeah. You know, make it sound like everything. And don't worry about if it's the genre that you fit in or not, just kind of make something that you feel that you like. And that, that's all, that, that's all that has to do is you just have to like it. At the, like at the risk of sounding like that old person looking back on it, but it is like you wonder if a scene could have a chance to develop like that now. You know, like that's something that keeps coming up on here. Like, or would you know, like would the the light of of the media kind of like fall on it too quickly, and would like these bands get a chance to develop like that scene developed? Yeah, I, I really have no idea. I mean, I feel like once. People are able to go back. I think this this pandemic that we're in right now, I think, is really going to have a huge, like, tectonic shift in what live events are going to look like, and the way kids or younger people want to how they want to interact in a live setting. You know, so I, I think it's a for me, it's kind of a big question mark on what um, how what the future of sort of live live music will be i mean maybe it doesn't have to be live in certain certain ways i, I kind of always have I, I try to fall on the side of the coin where i have faith in the future you know what i mean just because what i did just because i got the chance to love what i did doesn't necessarily mean that's what the future has to do i have faith that they're going to figure something out that works best for them um you know what i mean but it's it's I'm just so curious what it's going to look like you know especially now you know being parents and looking at stuff going like they're going to figure something else out that I have no idea what it is. And I may not even like it, which is probably even better. Like <laughs> the worst thing you could do is like your kid's music. I think, you know, that's just the, you know, you know, your kids aren't doing something right. If they're not offending you and scaring you in some ways, <laughs> I want, yeah. I want to be, I want to be confused by my children when they get to be 14, between 14 and 24. If they're not doing things that kind of make me question my own sort of, place in the universe that I didn't do my job. I didn't, I didn't make a, I didn't create a, a free thinking individual person. He should challenge me. These kids should just challenge us and, and flip us on our, on our asses. And for whatever reason, you know, make us reconsider what we did and think about it in a different way. So I'm, I'm hoping that that'll be different just cause I mean, this, think of all the stuff we missed out on, you know I mean? I look at the shows and like, Holy shit, like that lineup, that place at this thing of oh God, that would have been so cool. And like, all we had, all we had was a bunch of these nerds, all, you know, like my, was a bunch of these bands playing when it's like, you know, I was, I was, it's, it's a funny place to try to situate myself and or situate yourself in any kind of place in time. I just know that what we had was, was, was fun. You know, definitely, we definitely had fun doing it. And, uh, and it didn't, I don't think I left anything. Uh, there was no gas left in the tank. I guess from, from that time, you know, I mean, I still, I feel very comfortable and very excited about what we get to do now, but in terms of looking back, like I have no regrets or that feeling of like, should have gone harder, should have gone bigger, should have been bigger. It should have done this, should have, could have, would have, like whatever it was going to be, we, we gave everything there was from that period of time to just like full, like full throttle, like foot on the pedal all the way. Like, just, let's do it. 
so I feel really good about that. And I don't feel like, um, I don't know, because I guess, I guess, I guess in, in a reference to like people talk about punk and like crazy shows, the craziest shows of this and that, like, I don't know if it's like this ever for you because I've seen the, the intensity that you guys have live, but, um, I kind of, I think Dean and I kind of got burned out on like the, the like stage diving and like kids almost, it felt like they were going through the motions somewhere, somewhere in there. It was like, people just saw this on like a, a video somewhere that like you're supposed to like get up on stage and jump on someone else's head. I was like, this stuff's dangerous. You guys are going to like, not even being a, from a parent point of view of being uptight. It's just more like your hearts aren't even in it. You guys are just a bunch of like tourists coming down here, trying to beat up your friends. Like it just felt like, I don't know. It became a, the, the, I don't know. The violence of it all just became so routine and kind of boring. Yeah. Like I think it's, it's with the moshing stuff. It's very weird to kind of think about how that's going to look after this is over. Cause that's, that's, you know, like not just because of everything that we've gone through, but I just think we're at that point in history where because of cell phones and because of access to video, like people are going to be able to document when they're injured and, it's not like victimless crimes anymore where someone lands on someone's head and they're like, geez, my neck feels funny. Now they're going to be like, yeah, you're the guy who landed on my neck. Let's let's litigate. Oh my God. I didn't even think about it like that. Yeah. No. And it's, but I mean, I don't know. There's part of me that has to say like, you know, I love just things being, I guess if it's an authentically fun, weird, crazy event, that's, it's awesome. But at some point, you know, you just play these shows every night and it just feels like that the kids are going through the motions in a weird way. I, yeah, like I, I know, I, I think, I, I think for me, it was more a question of me getting burnt out on, on playing the live experience and trying to like, you know, like it's, it's, it's so much like when you're, t- when you're playing that one show and you can live for that moment and like trying to live and die on stage every single night, that's emotionally exhausting. Like yeah. it just wipes you out. And, uh, yeah, like at a certain point, like I was like, you know what, there's gotta be another way to do this. And I'm still trying to figure out what that is, but. Yeah, like I think trying to make sure that it's always an authentic experience for for you know ourselves on stage as much as it is for them in the crowd has been the challenge for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I, I feel you. I mean, and not and not to like get high on your own supply, but that feeling of like these are actually really good songs, you guys. Like, just calm down and listen to the music. <laughs> the music's actually really good. <laughs> just just listen. It's cool if you just stand there. You can just stand there and hear the music. That, that's kind of what I wrote this song for, is for you guys to hear it. And if you're just yelling and, and jumping around, you're not really hearing the music. Maybe that sounds like an old man shaking his fist at the cloud. <laughs> but so it's like, I don't know. I think I think it's 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 fun moving through all these. I, I just feel so fortunate getting the opportunity to still play music and still have people who want to come out and see us. I shouldn't complain yeah. about what they do. Yeah. So. Well, I think it's also just like, you know, like the look at these bands and to wind up being these bands and, you know, to, to be peers with these people, like to the, these heroes and, and yeah, it just feels very lucky. I feel very fortunate every day because I had to, I had got to experience that. Oh my God. Crazy. Right. I know. I always think about you talking with uh, kind of gr- uh, grilling Jay Mascus backstage. Yeah. I forced him and to I, be my yeah. friend. I punished him into being my friend. <laughs> I saw that happen. You saw it. You witnessed it. Yeah. I was like, oh boy, I'm going to leave this one alone. Yeah. I sure would like to talk to those guys as well. But I was was like, whatever's going on here. Like this is, this is different than a conversation. I was like, you guys, you guys just do it. You guys do what you're going to do. Yeah, definitely. I punished him into, (laughs) into friendship. And, uh, yeah, like I, you know, like there's so many of those experiences, like where you're like, you know, like you're saying playing Coachella and like sitting beside, you know, like you're sitting beside Kevin Shields. It's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to sit here in silence? No, I'm going to, Force this guy to talk to me about punk for a minute. 
Yeah, no, it's great. No, I remember the one of the most surreal things ever happened. I was, I was a huge My Bloody Valentine fan as a kid and, and uh, getting to play some shows and, and talk with him. He's the nicest guy. And and then we ran into him at an airport like later, like a, months later after we t- hung out backstage and he was going somewhere. We were, we were coming from somewhere and we talked like, oh, we should get, we should exchange numbers. And I remember uh, just like, oh my God, I had Kevin Shields' phone number. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it just kind of like broke my brain. And I've literally never called the guy. And also, cause then I, then I just got stuff. I was like, what am I going to do? What do I, he doesn't, what do I, uh, it just became too much. I was like, the fact that I, that he was nice enough to do that, you know, give me his phone number. Like that's insane, but I'm never going to call the guy. Just leave this poor man alone. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't need, I'm like, be like a Chris Farley interview. Like, remember that time when, uh, <laughs> you said, how soon is now is, is how soon is now now? Like when you were sitting, you wrote that song. <laughs> Well, that's why you've got that in case of emergency break glass phone number now in your phone. You're yes. like, okay, yeah. I might you need to know. call this guy one day. <laughs> and yeah, I have an emergency. Well, you need that. You need that Supreme uh, My Bloody Valentine shirt that just dropped. Oh, well, there, there you go. That's what. That's the. I don't know if that's going to be my emergency, but, <laughs> <laughs> but one one day, one one day it'll be there. It's like a, it's like a, yeah, it's it's a plant and payoff in a film. Like oh, you never know when it's going to come back. You're going to need it. Well, Randy, speaking of coming back, yes. anytime you want to come back on this podcast, the door is always open. Dude, thanks so much, man. This is so much fun. I, I appreciate it. Thank you, Randy, for coming on the show. And Randy will be back for part two in the near future. But uh, tomorrow on the show, or the next day, uh, Dean will be here from No Age as well. So we'll be continuing that. And once again, check out Goons Be Gone uh, when you when you, uh, when you you get off this thing. As soon as you're done, you're like, boom, clicking over there. Uh, and we're going to have a lot more stuff coming up later on this week as well. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore because i got to get to editing the other podcast. Uh, but that's it. Uh, thank you very much for supporting this podcast, checking it out. Remember, as always... Uh, Go out there and make your own culture. Um, To everyone that's out in the streets right now fighting for what's right, Black Lives Matter, and it is important that the the fight continues. If you're able to, you know, donate money. There's a lot of organizations all over the world right now that need funding for bail and and whatnot. So look into that. Also, educate yourself and and have discussions and talk with people and stay safe right now. and and yeah, keep your eyes open and be aware. And uh, that, that's it. I love you. And I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.